probably have a different version. So as we go, I will probably just read chunks out as well. Is that alright? Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Um, I did have like this awesome intro part, but I think Bella's pretty much covered it in what we've looked at in James already. Except to say that I think James is not so much on about like theology, you know, the study of who God is, or even Christology, the study of who Christ is and what he's done. He doesn't talk like that. And the reason he doesn't do it is because he's writing to Christians. He assumes that they already know this stuff. They already understand the gospel. They put their faith in Jesus. And now they're asking the question, what do we do? How do we live in this world? Can you imagine what it would be like changing your identity and becoming a Christian and then not having the Bible and not having a single other Christian, apart from maybe James, who is further down the track than you are? Like, really, you're all in the same boat, and so you're just sort of waiting around in the dark. So James writes and goes, no, this is how we live that out. But he does assume some knowledge, okay? And I'm going to sort of touch on that um, a little bit. Um, Beck Wagstaff was sharing our table group last week after Ella spoke about um, she was went on a holiday, like in driving up through the central areas of Australia, and the roads were flat and it's sort of red dirt and there's not many trees but every once in a while there's like a little hump in the road but you can't see the top of the hump and it's all dirt and whatever and occasionally I guess the ground gets soft so someone will stick like a flag in the middle of the road like a red flag and sometimes like an oil barrel so that you know when you're heading up there to be on your guard like look out for this because otherwise if you hit it at 80 or whatever speed you're doing you're probably going to end up in a bad way and James is a bit like that so we've heard the practical outworkings of faith already, some of them, obviously not all of them, but some of them. Um, and I guess when we hear them, I know when I hear them and at our table group last week, we were like, oh, yeah, this is all so good. And I feel really like convicted by it. But how do you, like, how do you stop doing that? Like, how do you stop showing favouritism? You know, like, it's, it's really hard. Um... And, and James wants to give us two really good markers on, on how to stop doing that. Well, three really, but let's say two. Two things to look out for, one stack of stuff to apply. So let's dig in. Um, maybe I'll pray. Gracious Lord, um, thank you for your word. Help us to just hear something about you that's exciting, that we might um, love you more and honour you as our Lord, that we might love one another and serve one another and bring you glory in the places where we live. Amen. Amen. Right. Okay, so, first little section. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
So two types of wisdom. Um, they have two different origins. One is from above, one is from the earth. And, and we'll call that worldly wisdom and we'll call the one from above godly wisdom. I think we can assume that we'll all agree on that. Um, and they have two different origins, but they also have two different endpoints. Two different ways of working themselves out in the lives of people. Um, but James doesn't tell us what the content of that wisdom is. Does he? He never says actually what it is. He just tells us how it plays itself out. But because he knows these people are Christians and because we're Christians and we've, we've read the Bible, we know the story, we know the content of what worldly wisdom is. We see it from Genesis 3 at, in the garden as soon as the, people, the Adam and Eve believe the evil one and turn their backs on God, choosing to sin, to fall. Worldly wisdom says, it's all about me. I am amazing. I am utmost in my own affections. I'm right, like always. Um, my happiness and my joy are the most important things. But where does worldly wisdom end? It promises to end in, in sort of satisfaction and happiness. Kylie pointed that out in the first week. But it never delivers. Worldly wisdom finds its end in bitterness. Now, why is that? Because while we might think that we're, you know, everything, nobody else does. Nobody else actually serves me like I think I ought to be served. Nobody else worships me and, you know, listens to my words like I think they ought to. Because they're too busy doing that themselves. And far out. Like, I am the, I am the king and I am God. So why have I got this stuff that I don't have? I actually deserve this stuff. And so we get jealous. And we think, how, how can I get what they've got? Like, how can I get to the top? How can I physically be the best in the room? And we do that in ways that are only devoted to self, selfish ambition. So worldly wisdom lies to us and tells us, yeah, this is going to make you feel so good. You're going to be so fulfilled. You're going to be so satisfied. You're the boss. You're amazing. But it never ends that way. It ends in bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And what follows right along behind those two things, like groupies, disorder and every vile practice. Disorder and every vile practice. Because if I'm the one and I really don't care about you as much as I care about me, then I will do whatever I need to do to get wherever it is I need to be. It's a disaster. Worldly wisdom lies to us. It doesn't lead to life. It's not spiritual. It actually leads to death and chaos and disorder. It's demonic. It's opposed to God. Fundamentally opposed to him. If there is a God, well then he's really just there to serve me. Like, and if I just whack him with my prayer stick, like a piñata, then he will just give me what I need. But God isn't like that. Whilst the worldly wisdom lies to us when it tells us if there is a God, that that is what he's like. Let's look at the second type of wisdom, which I think is much more cool. The second type of wisdom comes from God, and it doesn't lie to us. And it doesn't deceive us. 
wisdom from above says God is God. And what is utmost in his affections is him, not you. You are not number one. You are not the point of the purposes and plans of God. He is. His glory is. Even as I say that, there's this tiny... I've been a Christian a while, so I've I've modified my behaviour somewhat. And maybe my thinking a little bit. But even as I say it, there's still this little bit in me that just goes, Oh, that is so harsh. God is not about God, not you. But it's true. Lies and deceptions are super comfortable. They're easy. But the truth is actually really hard to hear. And God tells us what's utmost in his own affections is him and his glory. He's on about his glory. And that's right. Because if there's anything higher than him, if there's something that he puts above himself, well, then that's idolatry, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Or if it's not idolatry, then maybe that other thing is God, and then he's not God. So he cannot put anything above himself. He has to be number one. He has to be. Otherwise, he's not God. And why would we want to worship him then? No, he's utmost in his own affections. But the awesome part about that is, in order to glorify himself, he pulls us into the picture and the plan. So to glorify himself, he calls the people to himself. Out of sin and worldliness and death and all those gross things, into holiness. They become from enemies of God to children of God. They're so wrapped up in intimacy with him, in worshipping him, in loving him, that they can't help but reflect him to the world. And so he's glorified in the way they think, in the way they grow, in the way they worship him, and in the way they image him, reflect him out to the world. So it is an awesome thing that God is number one on his priority list, and not us, because we get included in Godly wisdom also says to us that this is not it, that there is something else that is to come. And that's where your focus ought to be because this is passing away. This is a moment in time. That is eternity. And so godly wisdom fixes its focus into eternity where that harvest of righteousness is. So what does that look like outwardly? Well, the passage told us that as well. When Christians play out this sort of behaviour, it looks like peace. And purity and gentleness, being open to reason. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because I don't have to be number one anymore. I don't have to be right all the time. I can actually be wrong, and that's okay. I can listen to you, actually listen, not fight against you mentally while I'm looking at you. I can actually listen to you and be open to reason. Amazing. Um, We can show mercy because we've been shown mercy. We get that because we've been shown it. We can bear good fruit. We can actually do the things that God's called us to do. And we can be impartial and sincere. And the groupies that follow along with this, harvest of righteousness. So when we live according to godly wisdom, man, the seeds go out in the way we live and in our words. And God does amazing things. He brings others into the kingdom, which is what we were designed to do as his people, is bring others in. So two types of wisdom. Now I wonder... How do you see um, worldly wisdom at play in your life? 
really easy to point it out and to pinpoint it in sort of the world, like in society, that's easy, right? Corruption, um, you know, all the awful stuff, rape, murder, all that yuck. It's there, right? We know it's there. And it's easy to see in other people. Like, oh man, so vain. So into yourself. What do you think you're so good? What is the word for it? I think my kids use the word eshes. Maybe I'm not using that exactly correctly, but my in my sort of understand that that means that someone thinks they're really good, like they're into themselves. We we can see it in the world and we can see it in others, but it's really hard to see it in ourselves. Hey, why is that? Because of the nature of deception is that you don't know that you're being lied to. You can't see it in yourself as easily because you are being lied to and you're believing it. I'm believing it. I believe it. The world that we live in, that we swim in, the air that we breathe is worldly wisdom and it lies to us all the time. Like just advertising. You're number one. It's all about you. You're so precious. Even I was just thinking when I was practicing before this talk in the car, as you do, um, you know, then is it Nike? Just do it. Just do it. No, don't just do it. Switch your brain on and think. Is this a good decision? Don't just do it. Like, think. Anyway, so this worldly wisdom is everywhere, right? And we swim in it and it's hard to see it in ourselves. Hopefully... Can give you some tools that I'm trying to use, not amazingly well, to sort of pinpoint it a little bit in in yourself. Hopefully. Anyway, next section. Okay, so the first problem, worldly wisdom. The second problem is talked about from chapter four. So I'll just read the first little section again. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this? That your passions are at war within you. You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You are asked and you don't receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people. Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Oh my gosh, that is so intense, isn't it? I think um, James picks the most obvious human experience of sin to highlight to us that it's sort of in all of us. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Anyone? (laughs) When was your last fight or quarrel? Selfishness. Selfishness. We all, all experience fights and quarrels. Some worse than others, but um, we all do it. Maybe it's only internal, but you do it, right? Internal argument. Mm. We all do it. And the reason we all do it is not because we lack education or we are poor communicators or... What's the other one I wrote down? Oh, because we have personality conflicts. Or we just don't respect one another. No. That's worldly wisdom. The Bible says the reason you fight and quarrel is because your passions are at war within you. You are the problem. 
I am the problem. I have these passions, or the Bible often calls them lusts, in me that are fighting constantly against the Holy Spirit who is in me. He's trying to transform me into the image of God, (laughs) into the image of Christ, sorry. And, And I've still got this sinful nature residing inside me. And it's fighting. And you know what? It wins heaps. Like, heaps. Not all the time, but heaps. I am a nurse, as a lot of you know. Um, I remember a couple of years ago um, being up at the surgery up the road and uh, standing in the, the waiting room and there was these two little babies sitting on their... They were twins, sitting on their mum's lap. And I reckon they were about six months old. Old enough to hold their heads up, but not much else. Um, so they're sitting there, and mum's chatting away over here with someone else and totally not paying attention, which is great. Um, one of them had lost his dummy. I can't remember if he dropped it or maybe just didn't have it at all. But the twin had a dummy in his mouth, happily suckling away on it. And the, and the first one just reaches over, grabs the other one's dummy, yanks it out of his mouth, and sticks it in his own mouth. And the other one obviously starts crying and carrying on. Now, we tend to go, oh, so cute. No, not cute. That is sin. That is sin at play. I can see in their greed, selfishness, um, totally disregard for the other person's good or comfort. It's there in a six-month-old. Nobody taught those children how to do that. That is innate in them. They were born with that. In fact, we spend the rest of their lives training them not to live that sort of stuff out manners and sharing and all that sort of stuff but innate in them that's not taught is this sinful nature that puts self first they just don't hide it very well when they're six months old (laughs) as a woman we go through lots of stages now I'm not under any delusion that I am there clearly I'm not but a couple of big markers in my life have been becoming an adult so the point in time where I felt like I was responsible for myself, like my decisions were on me. Um, my parents, fantastic, and I was still maybe living in their house at the time, but really the buck stops with me and I have to give account for myself. That was pretty empowering to me. And then I moved into this other phase where I became a wife, and so I took with me everything I learned as a responsible adult, young adult, as much as you can be responsible as a young adult, but anyway. Um, and now I have to adjust everything and think about this other person. So every decision I make, has, they have to be taken into account. Everything we do, I have to take that into account. Everything. And then I became a, a mum and I took all the information from adulthood and becoming a wife and then now I'm in this new identity, mother, and I've got to figure that out. And, I'm, and I guess I'm still in that space. Um, I'm not yet in the emptiness space, but I have lots to learn. So please, teach me um, if you're already there. Uh, but the point is that I moved from one identity to another. But I still took things with me in the journey. And spiritually, growth and maturity are the same. So I go from a non-Christian, enemy of God into this new identity of child of God. But I take along with me my sinful nature. Jesus paid for our sins, for sure. He took the punishment, 100% 
gone. He's removed them as far from us as the east is from the west. He's taken that away. And the power of sin is broken by his death. So I'm not a slave to it anymore. I can choose to obey God when at once I couldn't. But everything, every ingredient that led to my sinful decisions and actions in the past has come with me into my Christian life. I don't get to leave that behind. When I became mum, I didn't get to dump wife. When you become a Christian, you didn't dump your sinful nature somewhere over there. It came with you. And that is the second reason why it is so hard for us to apply godly living in practice in our lives because we've got the world lying to us constantly and then we've got this sinful nature in us that won't go away. And the work of the Christian for the rest of their living life is to put that thing to death, to kill it. So Paul says that in in Romans. Put sin to death in you. You don't get to just be comfortable with it. We don't get to just brush it off over there somewhere. Oh, yeah. I'm not perfected yet. Oh, moving on. We don't get to do that. God is not okay with the indwelling sin that remains in us. He's just not okay with it. And we need to do something about it. Now, I feel like there's also this part of me that goes, yeah, but Kelly, God transforms you. Like, this is the grace of God. It's done by the Spirit. Totally true. It's 100% true. It is. But he asks you to cooperate and to participate. And he uses active words that we've all heard before for our role in putting this sin to death. So a couple that I can think of off the top of my head, because you know what? I have no idea where I am in my notes anymore. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The whole put on, put off thing. Put off. Take off your sinful nature. Take off this behavior. That's active. Or run the race. That's an active word. Or get trained in righteousness. There's activity involved in that. Um, Our response to the grace of God is to be obedient and to live for his glory. And that means putting this thing to death. And it's super hard. Super hard. It is the work of the rest of our life as Christians. So let's have a little look at some tips and tricks on how we might do that. It says that God yearns jealously over us. Over the spirit, actually, he has put in us. He's not jealous of us, he's jealous for us. That's quite motivating. He's called us his own, like the husband brings his beautiful bride, washes her Old Testament. Don't think modern. Old Testament. She gets washed, she gets dressed in the gown, she's presented to her husband and he loves her. That is the picture between us and God. That is what he has done. And if we will not work at putting this sin in us to death, if we prefer to just let it sit there and and have that war between the sinful nature and the spirit ongoing forever and he makes no progress and you don't get transformed into the image of God, well then, yeah, adulterous people is a pretty good description for us. And it would be right then, if, if we're adulterous, that he would be jealous for us. Having God's perspective on our sin is very motivating. 
So that would be step one. Try and get God's perspective on your sin, on my sin. Um, have you ever noticed that when you make a, a decision on, oh, I'm going to do this um, godly thing, like read my Bible, that it's not very long before you sort of collapse in a heap? Like you go good for a while. Like for me, last year was awesome, actually. Through to this year, until I got whooping COVID, and then I got really not well. And then I've got the thing again. And it's just been a bit of a struggle since then. Why? Because I get up and read my Bible first thing in the morning and I've been a bit tired. And it's been hard. And so I just sort of haven't done it. I have. But there's gaps. Big gaps that weren't there last year. Why is that? Why is it when we decide to do something godly that our resolve crumbles? The sin that lives in us is not a sleeping thing. It's not like like a mole, you know? Like it's a bit ugly. I've got a few of them. Well, a lot of them actually. They're a bit ugly, but they're benign. Like they're not, they're not doing anything, so I don't really care too much. Sin is not like that. It's not a mole that just sits there and does nothing. And it's just a bit unattractive. Sin is much more like cancer. It grows and it festers and it spreads out and it will take over other parts if you don't keep watch on it. Sin in you will actively divert you from any act of godly, obedient living. It is not passive. It is active in you. We need to be aware of the active nature of the sin that lives in us. So how do we, how do we be aware of it? Uh, super challenging part. Um, I'm looking at verse 6. But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. How do we be super aware of the active nature of sin in us? Well, we need to humble ourselves and acknowledge that it's there and that it's alive and that we don't have it all together. And there might just be some sin that we're not quite aware of yet. When... um, I was directing a beach mission team. I actually, like it was a rainy night and the toilets we used were pretty dodgy and they were open air and there was dirt on the floor and if there was any toilet paper and then it got wet, it was just gross. So one morning I thought, I will get up and it's been raining so I will clean that out before the rest of the team gets up so they don't have to go into the main toilets. And this was a godly motive, right? I want to serve my team got up early and I went and did it and somewhere in the process of me doing that this thought invades my brain I hope someone sees me (laughs) what? I did not intend for that to be there that was not my motivation at all when I started but somewhere along the line this thing invaded my brain and you know what and then I sort of played with it a little bit Maybe if I just take a bit longer, people will start getting out. <laughs> what is that? That is sin being active and like opposing godly behaviour. Like it is alive. It is on the attack. It's not just sitting there doing nothing. It, is, it will have you. Sin will have you if you will let it. So being humble, according to this verse, God opposes the proud but gives grace 
to the humbled. Humility says, I don't have it right. Somewhere in me, in every action, in every thought, sin is going to be there. I have to find it. I have to know where it is. I have to examine it. So the first step in that process would be give it a name. Give sin a name. The Bible has lists of stuff in there, heaps of them. Find your sin in your thoughts, maybe in your actions as well, and give it a name. And then confess it. Yes to God, for sure, 100%. But to others, confess your sin to your sisters in Christ. Now, maybe part of you goes, "Ah, no way, I am totally not doing that. Firstly, it's uncomfortable to think about my sin. And secondly, I'm not going to tell someone else about something I'm uncomfortable or ashamed of because what if they think I'm awful? Or what if they think I'm like, super dodgy? You know what? They totally already think that. <laughs> they totally already think that. We need to not fear and, and submit our hearts to worldly wisdom which says you need to be number one and you need to be seen to be awesome. We need to trust God. He says, confess your sins, not just to him, to one another. Confess your sins, don't name it to someone else. Um, then together, now that the sin's front and centre, we're not hiding it from anyone anymore. And because God has equipped your sister in Christ to know how to handle your confession and to not judge you in it, but to love you in it, together, ask questions of that sin. Like, when does this thing happen? When do I think like that? When do I do this? When do I do that? What, what does it look like when it erupts? So when my sinful desire meets the lies of the world and it's all given power and temptation comes in from the devil, bang, explosion of sin. What does it look like? When am I most vulnerable? How can I be more aware? What led up to this? So, when my kids were little, I used to pray for patience. I don't think I'm original in that. I think most mums pray for patience. I just need to be patient. I just need to be patient. And it just didn't seem to happen. Like, I just never seemed to be more patient. And it infuriated me, really. Like, why, if I'm praying about this, like, regularly, why is God not growing me? Why am I not maturing? And then I went to a talk. And Peter Jensen was talking, and he was going through one of those lists of sin, and he said, blah, 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 fits of rage. And I went, oh, my gosh, that is entirely me. That is what I do. I 100% do that. So the kid, like, I want to sit down and read and just have me time. Um, and the kids come in and they invade my space. And I can't just read. And if I could just read for, like, 15 minutes and have me time, then I'll be super refreshed. And I'll be so much a better mum if I do that. Lies. That is a total lie. That is my selfishness and my lack of trusting God to refresh me. That I think that if I do this, then I'll feel better. That I'm like super important at that point. I believe that. And the, and the world goes, yes, Kelly, you are. You are super important. Don't trust God. Read your book, which is not the Bible. It's like Twilight or something. Okay? Read that because that will be super refreshing to you. Total lies. They're total lies. At that moment, I need to remember who I am in Christ, that he is Lord and I am not, and I need to trust him to 
give me the strength that I need to get through. That he will refresh me, not a stupid book, that he will refresh me. And when they are asleep in bed, then you may read. Then you may, you know, do whatever. But for now, you're mum and you're on task and I'll get you through and I'll give you what you need. I didn't need patience. I needed to put to death fits of rage. That's exactly what I needed to do. And so I needed to map out when it isn't working, when I'm tired. When Steve's like super busy or away on camp, like youth camp or something, that's when it's really hard. When I'm in the car, I used to have this big Kia Carnival and they're back there yelling at one another. And I couldn't like, they weren't close enough for me to like do that. Not bad. (laughs) You know, on the beach, which, you know, you should never do. But anyway. Um, I couldn't do that. I could do nothing. And they're screaming their heads off. And that's when I'm going to explode. Like I've got no control. I just can't. So I had to, one of my strategies was pull over, get out of the car and go and sit on the grass. Shut the doors, put up the windows so you can't hear them. Not walk away, but just over there. Breathe. Pray. Get yourself together. Get back in the car and drive the rest of the way home. When you confess your sins to your sisters, you can do that together. Know your sin. Don't let it be a stranger to you. Know it in you. And then you can build a plan of attack. Don't just sit there and go, oh yeah, this is like a little mom. It's alive. So you have to fight. So put on the armour of God that he gives you, the word, prayer, brothers and sisters, and fight. Don't just sit. The next one. We draw near to God. Okay, this is not rocket science. We all know it. Draw near to God. How do we do that? In his word, by prayer. Um, there is this awesome old guy that I love. And I'm very nearly finished, I promise. Yeah. Um, and he's not alive anymore, which is a shame. Because I would love to go to a conference that he was speaking at. But he has this cool book. And he says that we need to meditate on God with God. I'm going to read it. Okay? It's a, like try to concentrate because it's a bit wordy. Okay. That is, when we would undertake thoughts and meditations of God, his excellencies, his proprieties, his glory, his majesty, his love, his goodness, let it be done in a way of speaking unto God, in a deep humiliation and abasement of our souls before him. That's that humble yourself thing again. This will fix the mind and draw it forth from one thing to another. To give glory unto God in a due manner. And it will affect the soul until it be brought into that holy admiration of God and delight in Him, which is acceptable to Him. So when you read, don't just open the Bible, tick, done, read someone else's thoughts on it. That's not a bad thing, but it doesn't engage your heart and soul. It might be a starting point for sure, but dig around in it. For yourself. I write it down just because I'm one of those people. But you don't have to do that. Whatever. It doesn't matter what it looks like. But dig around. Talk to him. What do you mean? What do you mean? What are you saying there? What do you mean, you adulterous people? Why do you choose that word? Ask questions of it. And, and your thoughts will move from one thing to another. And in that, you really uh, engage mind and soul. The next one. In drawing near to God. Um, meditate on the word in the word. I think as Anglicans, we're pretty good at that. So we get a passage and we know, okay, this fits in a book, or it fits in a context, it fits in a book, it fits in a testament, it fits in a whole picture of salvation history. We're pretty good at that. So do that. Don't cherry pick verses and just 
think that that's going to help. It's probably not. And the third one in drawing near to God in the word is if your brain will not engage on that particular day, then just do it more frequently. So let um, repetition make up for your lack of brain power. And what do I mean by that? So you read, "Mm, I've got nothing. I've read it like six times, that passage. It's short. I've read it six times. I can't get anything. That's okay. I'm going to move on. I'm going to listen to some music. I'm going to listen to Christian music. And I'm going to think again. And then I'm going to come back to it later. And I'm going to maybe pray about that. And then before I go to bed that night, I might just flip it open again. Do it frequently. If your brain will not engage, go frequency. Um, Super important. He says it better than that, but, but that's the gist. And then the last one that we need to do in order to put to death sin in us and to stop listening to the world is to feel the weight of our sin. So if you look at the last section of the passage... Um, It says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. This is the kicker. Be wretched, mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Sometimes we need to, well, not sometimes, all the time, we need to let the weight of our sin sit on us. So once we've seen it and identified it and we've seen how God sees it, We've engaged in the word so that we might transform our minds and not listen to the world so much. You need to let the guilt of your sin sit on you. Yes, Jesus has paid for it and we are saved by his grace and mercy. A hundred percent. That is true. But if we let something really penetrate into our heart, if you let the guilt sit there for a bit, that's very motivating. Why? Because the sick ones are the ones that need the doctor. If you just brush it off all too quickly, it won't do its work in you. Let the guilt of your sin sit on you. Be wretched and mourn and weep and have tears. Engage your heart. So, how are we going at growing in holiness? It's hard work. This digging around in your soul, identifying lies where we might be deceived, it's all hard work. It takes time. God gives us this last encouragement um, in this book of James, in verse 10. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We are not alone in this task. It's hard for sure. We have one another, but God is with you and he will exalt you. He just will. It's about his glory. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you so much for your word to us. We want to live for your glory. It's really hard. Father, show us where we believe the lies of the world in us. Yes, we can see it in the world and we can see it in others, but we need to see it in us. Show us where we've been deceived. Convict us of sin. Help us to give it a name. To realise that sin is active in us, it's not passive. And it will draw us off from you and it will have us if we let it. Help us to work towards obedience and holiness. And we thank you for the Spirit who is our constant companion and our strength, our security and our hope. Help us to trust one another with our hearts, with our sin, and help us push towards um, holiness together for your glory and for our joy. Amen. Amen.